dismissed, they're dismissed to our children's ministry. Uh, they can go with Hannah right out that door and to the left. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 32 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, there are some Bibles in the back if you want to grab one. Or uh, if you don't have one and just want to borrow one, you can raise your hand and uh, I'm sure somebody will get you one. But Exodus 32 is where we're going to be this morning. We have been walking through the book of Exodus for the past month. The book of Exodus is a rife story. It's full of lots of different things going on. But it's basically the story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt into a, a land where they're trying to figure out how to become God's people here on earth. How do we live? Uh, we used to be slaves, and now we're not. How do we live now that we're not slaves anymore? So this is the story. And we've walked through all kinds of things. So the, they were in slavery, and God appointed Moses to be their leader. Uh, Moses went to Pharaoh and asked him, Hey, say, let my people go. These are stories that if you grew up in church, you might even be familiar with. And so Pharaoh at first says no, but then all these things happen to Egypt, and Pharaoh relents. They get to the sea. Pharaoh sends his army back because he kind of has a change of heart, changes his mind. Um, but God delivers the people again, and then they, he starts to give them these commandments. This is how you live as free people. And, and then we get to this point where there's this odd story in the Bible that we're going to talk about this morning. And as we talk about it, I'll, I want to do a little bit of an experiment. So, uh, and this might be a little weird, but uh, if you've ever been here before, you know this is kind of what we do. We do weird stuff here. So, um, if you have something that, uh, like, if it's valuable, something that you would uh, be sad to give up, um, I'm going to ask if you would, if it's in your purse or in your wallet or on your person somewhere, if you would just get it out and uh, hold it up in the air. Now, if you have like a stack of hundreds or something like that and something that's like going to make you a mark for somebody to come rob you, don't do that. Um, or if it's something like intensely personal, don't do that. But if you have something valuable on your person, let's, let's all get it out and we'll take it up. And Jeff is pointing to the guitar on the stage. So, uh, yeah, let's bring these things out and uh, see what they would, they, would, they would look like. So um, I don't have, like, my phone with me. My phone's kind of junky anyway because I've dropped it a bunch of times and it's older, but that might be the most expensive thing that I have. I figure a lot of us might have phones. This is my wedding ring, so um, I'm going to hold this up. Let's see what else we got. Let's see them. Phones, a lot of phones. Keys, there we go. Mostly phones and jewelry, right? So that's what we got. All right, so now as you're holding this stuff up, um, what if I were to tell you that as you hold these things up, that I'm going to collect all of them, and we're going to put them in a pile here, and we're going to take them apart, and we're going to find the most precious uh, elements out of all those things, and, and we're, maybe we're going to build something out of it, we're going to melt it all down, and we're going to build something, and we're going to put it on the stage, and then we're all going to worship it. That would be crazy, Right? Yeah, like it would, as weird as we are sometimes as a church, you would think, all right, this is the line. I'm never coming back to Soma. This is it for me. I'm not doing this anymore. But the story we're going to read today, people actually do this. And so when we read this story of the golden calf, we think, that doesn't really apply to me because I wouldn't do that, right? Like, the reason why that's a ridiculous thing is because we're not going to take all our cell phones and our keys and our guitars and melt them down and, and bow down to whatever it is. We're, we're not going to do that. But when we look at the story of the golden calf and we think, 
Idol worship is something that that's used to happen to people because they used to bow down to statues and stuff like that, but we don't do that anymore. Then what we're doing is we're losing this idea of what an idol actually is. Because if we think an idol is just a statue that people used to bow down to, then we're mistaken. Because an idol is something that takes the place of God in our lives. And we have these people who have used to be slaves, and they've gone through this time in their life where they've seen God do lots of things, and then they get to this point where they put something else in the place of God, and that's dangerous. And while we don't struggle with bowing down to idols, to statues, and while we don't take our valuables and melt them down, there's a time in a lot of our lives where we put something else in the place of God, and that's a dangerous place to be. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, we're going to read about half this chapter. We're going to read about 14 verses in the book of Exodus, but we're going to stop along the way. So we're going to start in chapter 32, verse 1. When people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So this is the first verse, and I want you to stop here. So this is very early on in the story of the golden calf. And what happens is uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. We talked about this a little bit last week. Moses goes up on the mountain to hear from God, to talk to God. And he, God starts giving him these commands, these kind of rules that he wants the community to uh, follow and pay attention to. And while he's up there, the people miss Moses. And because they miss Moses, they start freaking out. I mean, they freak out. They say, Moses isn't here anymore. That must mean God is not here anymore. And because God's not here anymore, let's go and make another God. That's what we need to do. So the people, they have this kind of issue where they always, they equate the presence of Moses with the presence of God. And so if Moses is gone, that must be, mean God is gone. And if God is gone, then we have to have some other God to worship. We have to have some other God to bow down to. And since Moses is gone, let's make our own God. Now, this seems a little strange, except for the fact that sometimes we struggle with this. We have a tendency to sometimes think God is only in certain places, or God is only with certain people. And so if those people are gone, or if those places are absent from our life, then God isn't there anymore. And even in the way we talk, I was having a conversation this morning about a, a church camp I spoke at a few weeks ago. And it's two teenagers. Uh, it was a camp for teenagers. And there's two teenagers are talking back and forth. And one was like trying to pull some prank on the other and told a lie. And the other one said, ooh, you're lying in church camp. And I thought that was a strange statement because the implication is you can't lie in church camp. Because this is a holy place, right? God is here. But, but I guess the implication is, like, it's okay to lie anywhere else because God's not everywhere. Uh, but if in church camp, you're, it's, it's a bad place to lie. But that's kind of the way we think, right? God is only at church or he's in small group or he's in these spiritually high experiences that we've had before. These kind of moments that we know God was there and we think God is just in those moments or God is just with certain people and if those people are gone or if we're absent from that place then God is not there anymore this is how we sometimes operate and the people of God when they don't have Moses around they start to think Moses is gone therefore God is gone and because God is gone 
then that means we got to find something else to do. We've got to find another God to worship if he's not with us anymore. And, and this, is, this is where this gets dangerous, right? When we don't feel the presence of God, we start to look at other things to worship. When God seems from, distant from us, we start to hang on to other things that we think we'll find peace and safety and security in. But maybe that's not the healthiest thing for us to do. So the people say, all right, Moses is gone. That means God is gone. And because he's gone, we have to make a new God. And so this is what Aaron says. Aaron is Moses' brother, and this is verse 2 through 6. Aaron said, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. So the people say, we have to form a new God, let's do that. And Aaron says, bring me all your valuables, bring me specifically gold earrings. That's what I need. And so it must have been a lot of gold on these people because it, it, they formed the shape of a calf. We don't know how big the calf was, it doesn't say. But they worship this image, but the image is made up of their stuff. So what they're actually doing is they say, Moses is gone, therefore God is gone, and because God is gone, we have to make a new God, and let's make a new God out of our stuff. Let's make a new God out of our stuff. And if idolatry is not us bowing down to a, a statue, because we don't do that anymore, maybe idolatry is the fact that we bow down sometimes to our stuff. Because our stuff oftentimes is more important than anything else. Now, we say that it's not. We will say that family and friendships and relationships are more important than our stuff. We will say that our faith is more important than our stuff. But the way we live does not always show that, that God is more important than our stuff. Because the reality is we spend a lot of time chasing after stuff. And I'm not pointing the finger and saying, you do this and I don't. I do it. We all do it. We, particularly in our like North American culture, we have a tendency to chase after stuff to think that's going to be the stuff that fulfills us. And so when we think about what do we replace God with when we have these issues in our life, what do we replace God with? And a lot of times we go to people who are not us. So we think of people who are very wealthy and seem greedy. So they just chase more and more bigger houses, bigger cars, more money, bigger bank accounts. And we think that's what that's people who have, have made money an idol, made stuff an idol. But that's not me. Or maybe we think of, uh, maybe not rich people, but we think of people who struggle with uh, addictions. And we think they are chasing stuff. They're chasing contentment. They're chasing peace through these substances, and, and they have a problem, and I don't have a problem. But a lot of times, I, uh, like, idolatry is much more quiet than that. Idolatry sneaks up on us, and we don't even know it's there. For, for me, 
I sometimes make stuff an idol, but I do it in a way that's not, I, I don't want a bigger house, and I don't want more cars, and I don't, I don't want any fancy stuff, honestly, in my own life. But I oftentimes am very afraid of what will happen if I don't have enough money. And so it becomes this constant worrying in my life. Um, a lot of you guys know that uh, we partner with an organization, our church and our family of churches partner with an organization in Ecuador. Danielle, our Spanish pa pastor, he is from Ecuador. His family runs an organization there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that organization in the next couple weeks. But I was there last week. Uh, I got back last Sunday. And while I was there, um, I was talking with uh, Daniel's dad about uh, some things they were dealing with while, while they're there in Ecuador. And there's this thing happening two countries away in Venezuela. And if you're not familiar with what's going on in Venezuela... The, the economy is basically collapsing, and people have lost jobs, and people have lost people don't have any food. A lot of times, they don't have homes. They're losing everything, and so people are filing out of the country by massive numbers. They think one and a half million people left Venezuela last year. And a lot of times, they don't even really know where they're going to go. They just have to leave because the situation is so bad. So they're going to Brazil, they're going to Colombia, and Ecuador is pretty close. And and Ecuador is a little less expensive than some of those other countries, so a lot of people are moving into Ecuador. So this foundation that we partner with sometimes, one of the things that they did not ex anticipate but have started doing over the past year was they start feeding Venezuelan refugees who have no homes, no jobs, nowhere to go, and they're just trying to provide meals for them. And so... They feed 120 people twice a week because right now that's all they can afford to do. And Friday last week, I was at lunch and we showed up. We actually were at a different place in Ecuador and we'd flown back into the capital and we showed up to this lunch where these 120 Venezuelans are eating. And for, for a lot of them, this is the only guaranteed meal they're going to get. They, they might get another one uh, in the next week, but... For this week, they know this is the meal that they're going to get. And some of them are young and have moved out. Some of them have families. And so you're scanning across these people. And, you know, your heart breaks for them. You, you look at them and, and um, we talk to them a little bit. And as they're leaving, as they're, as they're done eating, they're starting to leave. And there was a, a jar on one of the tables. And as a few of them are walking out, I see them reach into their pockets and one guy put seven pennies in a jar. And another guy, I think, put like 13 cents in there. And so you have these people who don't know when their next meal is going to come. They don't know where they're going to lay their head tonight. They're just trying to make a way for themselves and their family. And uh, they're, they're giving. And I remember, I remember thinking about those people, and I... Like, I, I got that, that experience, watching that happen, wreck me in ways that I still can't, like, wrap my mind around because it's only been, like, a week and a half. But I'm, I'm watching these people giving, and, and I remember thinking, like, if I had 13 cents and I didn't know where my next meal would come from, was coming from, you can be sure that I wouldn't be giving it to anybody because um, I don't have to worry about where my meals come from. I don't. And, uh... Except for the fact that my cars are old, they've been pretty reliable, and I can get around, and I have a roof over my head every single night, and I, I have these things at my disposal, but I still live in more of a state of fear than these people seem to live in. 
And, um, and I got to be honest, like, it's not wealth that's an idol for me, but it's like comfort and security that's an idol for me. What happens if that gets taken away from me? Can I still trust God if that gets taken away from me? And I'm ashamed to say that I don't know how, like, I don't think I would. Like, if the comfort was robbed from me, I don't know how I would feel. But this is what we do. We just take our stuff in some way or another, stuff that's valuable to us, and it may just be valuable to us, but when God seems distant, we put, instead of like trusting Him or going to Him, we put our faith and trust in other things. And it's just dangerous, like, because it's never going to be enough. Like, I'll never have enough comfort I don't, I, until I learn to trust God a little more. So the people make an idol out of their stuff. But not only that, they call their stuff God. So like in the translation we just read, as soon as they see the calf, they say, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. In some translations it says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. So they have seen God bring plagues upon Pharaoh. They've seen God split the sea in half. They've seen miracles. They've seen God bring them to a place they've never been before and a better place than they've ever been before. But once he seems a little distant from them, they build a fake golden calf and they look at it and say, that's the God who did all this stuff for us. This image, this stuff, this is the stuff that got me out of here. They lie to themselves. And Aaron says, we're, we're having a festival to the Lord this festival for this calf is the Lord. This is, this is what we're doing. We forget who God is. Like they have just totally forgotten who God is and what he's doing. And, and we worship it all. Um, I read a guy who said one time that an idol is not bowing down to a statue. An idol is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. So they take their stuff, their gold, and they make it God. And this is what we do. And we live in a culture that does this all the time. Like, I make comfort and security the thing that I can't live without. It's not God, it's comfort and security the thing that I can't live without. We live in a culture that takes um, money and gadgets, and that's the thing we can't live without. We live in a culture that takes sex and sexuality, and that's the thing that defines us, and that's the thing that we can't live without, and that's the thing that's more important than God. We live in a culture that takes politics or a political party and says that's the thing that we put our faith, hope, and trust in. It's not God, but that's the thing that we believe in. We, we live in a place that says my comfort my security is the most important thing in the world. My happiness is my God. And as long as I'm happy, I'm okay. We take other things that are good things, and we make them ultimate things. We make them God. And that's dangerous. But it's so tempting. Like, I understand. I, I get it. Because this is... I can't, I can't read this story of the golden calf anymore and... And not feel a little convicted. Not because I want to melt all my stuff and build a fake cow that I can bow down to. But because I know that it, during the week, 
in the times when I feel like God might be a little bit distant. My tendency is not to run to him. My, t- my tendency is to bow down to other things because I think they're going to fulfill me in some way. Verse 7, the Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly have they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. And I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Now this this part of the story is weird to me. Because God sees what they're doing. And he says to Moses, you need to leave me alone because I'm going to think about how I'm going to destroy all of these people. Now think about all the time and effort God has put into the people of Israel, right? He leads them out of slavery. He leads them into the new land. He saves them from almost certain death. And now he's brought them to this place. And once they get a little bit of distance from him, everything goes crazy But God isn't just angry. He says, I want to destroy them. And and Moses kind of walks, it says Moses talks to him. He says, don't do that. Moses pleads for mercy and he asks for grace. And he reminds God, I don't know if he can remind God of anything, but he seems to remind God like what you've done already. let's, Let's think about this. And I honestly don't know what to think about this because it says that God changes his mind. And I've read a lot of different uh, commentaries and different scholars and there's a lot of different opinions about what this means that God actually changes his mind. And so it's kind of hard to come up with if we believe God to be unchanging, if we believe God to be eternal, if we believe God to be the same yesterday, today, and forever, which are all things we believe. Is God really that whimsical that he could change his mind about destroying an entire group of people? I don't know. I don't know what that means, but here's what I do know. Is that God takes this idea of idolatry very seriously. Very seriously. Because he knows how much it can destroy us. He knows that we are creatures that are prone to worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. But if we worship something else, it is going to destroy us. Uh, There's this uh, writer that I like, and he uh, had this commencement speech at this college that's pretty famous, and he talks about this idea that we are all prone to worship something. 
And he basically says that like we, we worship in one way or another, but if we, if we worship the wrong things, it'll never be enough. So if we, work, if we worship beauty, then you'll never be good looking enough because there will always be somebody who's better looking than us. And as we get older and beauty starts to fade, we will die a thousand deaths every day. If we worship power, then you'll never have enough power because there will always be somebody who comes in and threatens you, the amount of power that you have. And the only recourse you will have will be to belittle people and to exert your power in unhealthy ways. Like if we worship money, if we worship stuff, if we worship anything besides God, it's going to come back and destroy us. It is going to rot us from the inside out. And it will not only rot our faith, it will rot our entire lives. Like, we talked about these things a little bit earlier, but I have seen people, I've seen people wreck love and wreck marriage for the pursuit of sex. I've seen people wreck businesses and wreck friendships for the pursuit of money. I've seen people wreck every single relationship that they have because they want a little more power in their own workplace. I've seen this happen, and we have all seen this happen in one way or another, and it's because usually it's because somebody feels the absence of God, and instead of pursuing God, they pursue stuff, and it just destroys them. But I love what it says in 14. It says at the end, the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Because at the end of the day, our God is a God of grace. And our God is a, a God who pursues us even when we don't pursue him. So when we are in these places where our addictions get the best of us, or our pursuit of comfort or happiness, or our pursuit of stuff, or our pursuit of whatever it is that's destroying us, God's still there with his arms open saying, come to me. Like, I, I can help you with this. It's my opinion, and this is just my opinion, that we all struggle with idolatry in one way or another still. And it's also my opinion that it's going to be a struggle for us as long as we're on this earth. Because the temptation to worship stuff, to worship comfort, to worship things that seem like they have eternal value but don't, is so great. But, um, God offers us himself. So why would we settle for anything else? It's okay to struggle with this. Um, but in our struggle with this, it is not okay to give up on God. Um, the Lord offers us grace and mercy and love that we cannot fathom. And if you're in a place where he feels distance from you, I would just tell you, like, it doesn't have to be that way. And, like, I'm not saying that all you have to do is pray about it and you'll feel fine later. But what I am saying is, if in those times where we feel very distant from God, where you personally feel very distant from God, if you pursue him, it may not be this afternoon and it may not be tomorrow, but he's eventually going to show up. 
if you stay engaged, and if you spend time in prayer, and if you spend time opening up a scripture and wrestling with it, and you spend time with, in community with other people, he's going to show up. Um, but you just can't give up. Like you got to keep going. God keeps pursuing us, so let's keep pursuing him. Would you pray with me?